And it just really pains me when I see people on airplanes eating garbage food because I'm just like, you don't need to, you don't need the kindling. You don't need it. You actually don't need it. You just, the problem is, is you're not metabolically flexible. And so you feel like you need it because you feel like you're going into starvation when you hit low glycogen. But really what's happening is you're just not able to tap into different pathways of fat metabolism. Mm -hmm. And because of that, people are so chained to their crappy processed food lifestyles. And it's like, to me, it's just mass brainwashing. Do you want to know what it is? Body, mind, empowerment. Get stronger, faster, smarter, quicker, friendlier, more helpful, more driven. Everything the body needs. Control your mind. Welcome to the Body, Mind, Empowerment Podcast. I'm your host, Seem Lund, and our guest today is Dr. Molly Malouf. Dr. Molly is an MD, scientist, and speaker who helps people optimize their health, nutrition, and fix imbalances in the body's chemistry. Dr. Molly, welcome to the show. Hi, nice to, nice to be here. Yeah, we, uh, we did like a podcast together with you and Tim Marina a few months ago. Uh, so what have you been up to since that time? Well, I... Um, <laughs> lots of things. So in the last four months, I've done three meditation retreats. So it's actually September, October, November, December, January. So technically five months. And I've been really learning a lot about consciousness and fundamental well-being and um, really just exploring parts of health that I've kind of kind of ignored for a while. So I've been so focused on the physical plane that I haven't really paid as much attention to emotional health and spiritual health. And so I decided to take a three month mini sabbatical and work on my book and work on whatever projects bring me the most joy. And so that's where I'm at right now. So I'm updating my practice. I'm working on a book. I'm uh, doing podcasts. I'm learning to surf. Actually, I'm learning to kite surf, um, doing lots of hiking and just, enjoying the fruits of many years of labor being a doctor mm, yeah definitely like uh, doctors tend to be um, one of those people who you know although they are quote-unquote supposed to be very healthy uh, oftentimes their own health tends to suffer because of like working too much or uh, you know doing the long hours oh yeah and in fact in america this is something i, I try to explain to people in america doctors have the number one rate of suicide oh, really? and although i've never been depressed when I found out that, 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 that number, I was so sad because basically doctors are chronically burned out and they're at capacity. And it's because the amount of work on their plate is beyond their, their ability to maintain. Um, their, basically, doctors can't maintain their health in their job most of the time because the job drains so much of their energy mm-hmm. and there's not a lot of time for self-care. And so I believe that chronic stress plus energy deficiency breaks the brain. And whether you call it anxiety, burnout, depression, you know, those are all just manifestations of brain dysfunction. Mm-hmm. And so what's really even con- more concerning to me is that medicine might be the third leading cause of death in the country, in America, wow. because of so many um, mistakes made and because of side effects of drugs and infections and surgical errors. So we are at a crisis point in our country with our healthcare system. And that's part of the reason why I pursued really trying to understand what is health fundamentally instead of how do I just fix more sickness? Like I really wanted to understand the, the first principles of health creation so that I could understand why chronic disease develops. And I discovered that most chronic diseases like cancer and 
um, and heart disease and diabetes and you know these these leading causes of death in in America all have similar underpinnings, <laughs> and the underpinnings are actually um, you know disordered energy regulation and metabolism through our lifestyles. So we sit too much, we eat the wrong foods, we eat too much of the wrong foods at the wrong times, and we, we have way too much stress. Mm -hmm. And we live in a culture of the narrative self. So people are constantly telling themselves false stories about who they are, which causes even more internal stress. Yeah. And then we live in cities which are su super filled with um, all sorts of sorts of generalized uncertainty, which, which basically increases the baseline level of stress. So now we just have, you know, disordered energy regulation, which eventually if energy efficiency reaches 50% decline, then you start to see the, the manifestation of chronic disease. So when I figured all of this out, I was like, oh, this is actually, I mean, our, our, our focus should really be on figuring out metabolism. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and, then, and then you have to dig into why are people making these decisions yeah. and why are people pursuing convenience? And it's because the capitalist world has basically preyed upon these these design flaws in our biology which is humans seek uh to find energy they seek to uh basically preserve and store energy and and, and ensure that they have enough to survive and um and and you know and that that's led to things like the the culture of movement being largely related to cars and not using our own body systems to to move mm -hmm. and then you know, so I could go on and on about all this and this is yeah. what my book's going to be about. But I know that you probably want to focus on metabolism for this talk. So I'm happy to go wherever you want to flow with this. <laughs> yeah, definitely. That's a very uh, unique perspective that you said that the healthcare industry is like the, one of the leading co creators of death or something like that. That is, it it's, is. it's actually true to a certain <laughs> extent that because, because it, it hasn't like made the situation any better, at least uh, yeah. from, uh, from my perspective, from well, being actually, a foreigner. Let's, let's, let's dig into that a little bit. So I've really, I've really researched the last 150 years of the emergence of the modern healthcare system in America. And what I've actually discovered is that we have actually saved a lot of lives through sanitation, better nutrition, and um, vaccinations and antibiotics. The problem is that, so we went from like living, people living 35 to 45 years old in like early 1900s to now living 75 to 85 years old. And that is actually pretty remarkable, but people think that's the healthcare system that did that. And that's actually more so the public healthcare system that mm. did that, yeah. as well as the advent of antimicrobials. Now we need to so we need to respect and recognize the value of these innovations, but realize that there's side effects and problems with them. So the problem with vaccinations is that if 350 million people get vaccinated, then there's going to be a small, you know, less than a percentage point of people who are going to have side effects, and those people are going to have serious side effects. And so there's no there's no free lunch when it comes to biology. Mm -hmm. You're going to have to deal with the side effects of biotech. And so everyone's freaking out about vaccinations, but you have to realize that like there are going to be casualties of a war on, on microbes. Right. So it's like actually putting on a objective perspective on all of this and saying, yeah, of course, a healthcare system kills a lot of people, but let's figure out what is our responsibility now in this world of all of this, um, all of this abundance of knowledge to mitigate some of these side effects of these problems. And one of the biggest things we need to do is we need to figure out how to reduce overuse of antibiotics, really perpetuate the knowledge around, you know, the, how do you bolster a better immune system? Mm -hmm. How do you create a stronger immunity, innate immunity, adaptive immunity, 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, def- definitely. And, these affections uh, in the first place, you know, and and that actually is largely lifestyle, and that's also recognizing, you know, the the problems with people living in close quarters, um, not living out like that. Just simply is not getting enough vitamin D, mm-hmm. degrades immunity, and we're spending 90 percent of our time indoors. So. I actually prescribe nature for people, nature exposure, because nature is actually a natural immune booster. And so it's really about, you know, fundamentally creating health and capacity from a molecular perspective and really understanding how to do that. And that's, um, and once you, once you learn all these little cheat codes of how we're, how we're made and how our evolutionary biology enhance, if you really understand how it's, what, how it's designed to keep you alive and help you thrive and reproduce, then you can use those pathways to increase capacity and increase mm-hmm. the ability to defend yourself. Definitely. Yeah, definitely. I, I agree. Definitely. And uh, it's almost like just uh, creating this balance again uh, bet- between the body and its own environment because yes. nothing, nothing itself is uh, inherently bad. Like calories themselves aren't bad. And it's just that like too many calories <laughs> can be bad as well as too little yeah. calories. So the same yeah. applies to exercise and even sunlight. So just uh, yeah. we have to kind of find what's the, uh, yeah, how do we create this uh, realignment with our uh, kind of primal physiology and the modern environment? Exactly. And, and, you know, you see people go really deep into one facet of, you know, primitive lifestyles. Like people are meant to eat more meat than we think. And then you see mm. them, you know, go into like fasting and they're like, yeah. well, people are meant to fast more often than we, we think. And, and, and fitness and um, and, you know, people go into CrossFit where we're supposed to work out more than we think. And yet, you know, so people kind of go overboard sometimes with the health movements without realizing their side effects of some of these things. So it's, it's also about reining in some of the, the health movements that mm-hmm. if you're not careful can also harm you too. So like mm-hmm. we, we, you and I both know too much meat activates too much mTOR, which activates too many growth signaling pathways. And that's a problem. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I know people who fast too much and then their micro, their microbiome just dies and gets degraded because they don't, they don't nurture that microbiome. And then the problem with that is you end up with, you know, um, I see people get depressed because mm-hmm. they're, they're not producing enough serotonin because they're fasting so often and they're sending yeah. signals that they're not safe and there's not enough food availability. So it's like really about balance and the toggling between these pathways so that you, you get the stimulation of these pathways, but then you get the rest from these pathways. And so I'm so curious to know your thoughts on all that. I know you're you're a one meal a day kind of guy, right? Uh, usually, yeah. Like, um, yeah. If, if I if I'm not if I'm not like in any particular different situation, then yeah, I try to. I you just I usually gravitate towards uh, one meal a day because like kind of convenience factors. Yeah, it's convenience and it and it just reduces food costs so much. It's amazing. Well, definitely, <laughs> <laughs> that's true. You know, and, yeah, and also like the mental productivity aspect that I don't really have to worry about uh, eating food during daytime. So it's kind of yeah. uh, simple, simple for that. Yeah, you get so many hours back in your day from not cooking, and then you get that brain function boost yeah. from just not having to direct all the blood flow to your gut to be digesting yeah. all day long. Yeah, and but at the same time, I'm also like uh, very hyper aware of the fact that it's not necessary for uh, or like everyone to do uh, in mm-hmm. a sense that uh, one meal a day itself uh, it's not like that much different from fasting for let's say uh, with two meals a day or even three meals a day uh, as, as long as you confine the eating window in some aspects so the length of the yeah. fast itself isn't like always uh, better in a sense that more is always better and more is like right. more is going to give you more more, more fasting is going to give you more autophagy and more autophagy is going to give you more health benefits, etc. It's not like that, not that uh, black and white. So definitely, I like, uh, I definitely have to be 
you know, reminding the people that you don't necessarily have to be constantly pushing the envelope of uh, mm -hmm. trying to make it harder for your body or something like that. In yeah. some aspects, you know, taking the step back and allowing your body to recover and nourish it is actually uh, better in the grand scheme of things in terms of like maintaining your metabolic rate and, uh, and that sort of things. Totally. I mean, I really get that. I actually experienced a lot of benefits last year from, um, I did like two months of every other day fasting mm -hmm. and I really saw my, my skin improve, my gut improve, my brain function improve, but then I got hit with a bunch of stress mm -hmm. and it was like, my body was like, Nope, you really need to not be doing this right now. And so I gave myself, I mean, I still did um, intermittent fasting and an occasional extended fast, but I definitely gave myself the time to recover. And I think that's so important is just teaching people the balance of this dance of metabolism and realizing that, you know, there's no, there's no real rules here aside from don't eat all day long every day, <laughs> yeah. you know, like, you know, there, there's times for feasting, there's time for fasting. And that's the, that's the natural rhythm of life. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, we talked about it on the previous podcast as well, but you're, uh, you're really using intermittent fasting with your clients a lot, like treating it for diabetes and that sort of thing. Yeah. I mean, I treat it for, I use it for, for performance as well. I had a client who was struggling with his body temperature and, you know, he had, he has Hashimoto's and was struggling to maintain a healthy body temperature. And I said, look, like the one thing we haven't done for you is we haven't tried intermittent fasting. And I've seen so many improvements in other clients who've done this that I just want you to try it and you don't have to continue doing it, but just try it out and see how, see what happens. And, you know, I think that the attitude of try it on, see if it fits, if it doesn't, you know, take it off is a really good way to approach a lot of health practices. And he was really, really astonished at how much it actually improved his health and actually raised his, his body temperature. Mm. And so what I find so interesting is that people don't realize that fasting and, and different types of fasting can actually build brown fat stores and brown fat produces more heat. Mm -hmm. So it's like, kind of fascinating because everyone thinks that fasting is going to lower your, your body, your metabolism. Mm -hmm. And it, it absolutely will if you're starving because <laughs> that's, that's going to happen. But yeah. you know, if you're not anorexic and starving or in a concentration camp, then fasting can actually boost metabolism. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's really a fascinating way to get your body to adapt to different demands. And, yeah. um, you know, for people with blood sugar dysregulation, it's, it's really paramount that people learn it, but it's also about recognizing that the interactions between fitness and stress and metabolism. And so if you're under really high stress, the real first priority is actually managing stress. And then, then you can add more stress like fasting, mm -hmm. but, um, some people just refuse to do that. And so, you know, I'll tell them just fine. If you're not going to reduce your stress then 12 hours of fasting, you know, <laughs> I won't give them a crazy number just because I know, you know, certain executives are going to go to sleep at eight or nine. Some, literally, I have, I have executives that go to sleep at like nine and wake up at four every morning and, um, and they're go, they're on. And so it's hard for me to give them a lot of fasting and, until they actually commit to some stress reduction. Yeah, definitely. Uh, you know, with, with uh, the aspect of time receiving eating, then I would still recommend for, I would recommend people to do that even if they're not going for like longer fast because that's almost yeah. like that's almost like a mandatory thing for just proper circadian alignment and the like general yes. metabolic health of not totally going into agree. this overly fed state. So you know even I mean if at they, least I mean fourteen hours at least is yeah, ideal. You know yeah, at the very minimum I think that's Rhonda Patrick's number. Um, Dave Asprey seems to think that eighteen hours is optimal, mm -hmm. 
Um, I'm actually a little bit more flexible in general. My, my goal is to like get you to win at intermittent fasting. So what can you actually accomplish? Yeah. And once you felt the win of I did that, then it's like, okay, let's test it out and let's see what, what else you can do. Um, one of my friends, Robbie is this doctor in, in Australia. And I asked him because he looks like a Greek God. And I said, you know, what is your favorite fasting regimen? He, he likes to do 16 hours a day minimum. Mm-hmm. And then one day a week, 24 hours. And then one, you know, a good three to five days, a quarter. Mm-hmm. And I'm actually, I actually kind of think that's also a good, uh, that's also a good possible, you know, regimen. Um, I, I, I just love food so much, but <laughs> I also love the way I feel when I'm not eating all the time. And I went on mm-hmm. a 10 day meditation retreat. And let me tell you, eating vegetarian, three meals a day with a snack, man, my system was so clogged. I just felt so on, I just did not feel well. And it's like, mm-hmm. you know, all the grain, ugh, it just did not sit well with me. So I'm really stoked to be doing a nice glycogen clean out soon. I'm going to do a three day fast in the next week. Mm-hmm. And I can't wait to feel the high of that third day. You know, you got to get to the first two days and it's like sucks. But then day three, it's like, wow, yeah. my brain, you know? Definitely. Yeah. So like you, at day three, you don't really want to quit even and you want to carry on. I always want to eat a day three. I'm like, I think men's bodies and women's bodies are a little different, but I just love food so much that I love to eat, but I'm, I'm actually, um, I also just enjoy the time to go inward and really reflect Mm -hmm. and just to like be present with my body and all those sensations. And so I'll be doing a bunch of meditation on those days and I'll just be like nurturing myself. But I'm going to say, I mean, if I feel really good on day three, I'll probably stick it out for another day. But usually by day three, I'm ready to eat. Yeah, and yeah, mostly I, it's the it's the hedonic, you know, desire. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and w- which is uh, nothing bad in a sense. Uh, and yeah. I, I definitely like agree. Like a three day fast is uh, probably like a good solid amount for getting like the therapeutic effects of the fast. In a sense that you're yeah. not really you're not really pushing it to the starvation limit, uh, but at the same time you are cleaning house and uh, kind of stimulating yeah. these longevity pathways, etc. Exactly. So a few a few times a year is definitely like what I. I uh, tend to gravitate towards as well. Uh, I, I usually kind of plan them according to my uh, travels and flights. So it's like mm-hmm. much easier to fast on the airplane than it is to do it at home. Oh, yeah. I prescribe that airplane fasting for everyone who travels because it's such a it's such a great life hack, right? Like you're fasting, you're on an airplane, you're not eating airplane food. You're, you get to you get to have this, this smug superiority that you're <laughs> saying no to all the garbage they're trying to feed you. Yeah. And everyone around you is looking at you like, whoa, how did you do that? Where's your self-control come from? And it's really just so helpful because you're upregulating detox pathways while you're in a very toxic environment of that airplane mm-hmm. air and then the jet fuel fumes that are coming at you when you're going onto the airplane. Mm-hmm. And so you're enhancing your ability to adapt to that travel. And then you also improve your ability to adapt to a new time, to a new time zone. So once you get to that new time zone, you get on that new eating schedule and you get outside and you get on that new light schedule, you snap into that um, new rhythm very, very quickly. And there's some great research on this. So to me, it's just such an awesome way to enhance your ability to adapt to travel. And um, I always recommend bringing tea sachets and bringing electrolytes. Mm-hmm. Because if you can stay hyperhydrated, then as you're on that airplane and you're kind of wrinkling like a raisin, your body mm-hmm. maintains that hydration level, which further enhances metabolism. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like I, I find it to be um, really great for enhancing focus. So I tend to get the most work done in airplanes because I've got those extra catecholamines being released from the fast. So to me, it's just like, it's a no brainer that fat, everyone should just be fasting on airplanes. And if mm-hmm. airplanes pr- promoted this, 
then they would save millions of dollars on food that people don't need, you know? But yeah. the problem is, is that most people are so habituated to the to glucose metabolism as their primary metabolic pathway mm -hmm. that they feel like they have to be eating those snacks all day long. And it just really pains me when I see people on airplanes eating garbage food because I'm just like, you don't need to, you don't need the kindling. You don't need it. You actually don't need it. You just, the problem is, is you're not metabolically flexible. And so you feel like you need it because you feel like you're going into starvation when you hit low glycogen. But really what's happening is you're just not able to tap into different pathways of fat metabolism. Mm -hmm. And because of that, people are so chained to their pr crappy processed food lifestyles. And it's like, to me, it's just mass brainwashing. And it's like, it's like it's so sad. And it's so, it's so, um, it's honestly so freeing to know that this is like a new way of life. Yeah. And yet I just, that's part of why my mission is in the next year is to, I'll be putting a lot of content online and really basically taking my course from Stanford and translating it into clips and an online course. So I'll be giving people tons and tons of tons of teaser videos and then giving them this opportunity to take an online course, which is the fundamentals of health creation and metabolism. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's definitely awesome. And like one of the few I would, in my opinion, one of the few you know, ways of increasing a person's confidence would be like uh, to just teach them that hunger isn't a problem or you don't have to be afraid of it. Because uh, like, yeah, the society is so, so conditioned to uh, be mm -hmm. afraid of even the slightest feeling of uncomfort. And uh, even, just, even if the fasting would give you some like, um, you know, hunger cravings or something for a short while, it's actually a good thing because you're kind of like strengthening your body as well as your mind. So you're becoming resilient, both mentally and physically. Exactly. This is it. You've nailed it. I mean, this is the fundamentals of health creation. It's about little bits of stress, build capacity at a molecular level. They actually, like mm -hmm. when you fast, you throw out the bad batteries. You can throw out the, the, the mitochondria that no longer hold, hold a good charge. And then when you exercise, you're stressing your body that way and you're sending signals to your body to produce more batteries and more capacitors. And so you're getting more charge. And then you know, when you feed your body different types of substrates, you're using different pathways to basically teach your body to metabolize different things effectively so that you're able to maintain a nice steady supply of energy. I mean, this is just the fundamentals of health creation. It's just so cool that like we now have this knowledge and the science to, to back up all this stuff that's been known for thousands of years. Yeah, yeah, yeah definitely. How would you go about like uh, building this metabolic flexibility in addition to fasting? Sure. I mean, the first thing that I tell people to do is to get fat adapted. So I really don't even recommend people go into fasting until they've done a, uh, a period of ketosis because ketosis is basically, you're still being fed, you still have food in your body. And so you st the, the, the psychological attachment to food is so strong that a lot of people aren't ready to give that up. So, and, and a lot of people will bonk if they start fasting um, without training their metabolism to metabolize fat effectively. So I put them on you know, a short-term ketogenic diet um, and then through that, they're able to build the, the ability to metabolize fat effectively. And then you can start experimenting with fat metabolism. I'm uh, sorry, with, with fasting, which is basically using those same pathways to burn your own fat. And, um, and you know, so those, those, I, I'm, I'm kind of the, the believer that like start with, it always starts with food and really eliminating processed foods, really getting person on a whole food diet, eliminating the grain. Sometimes the dairy as well, um, mostly because a lot of people have, you know, leaky gut and reactivity. 
So it's always begins at the gut level. Like, do you have a healthy gut? You know, do you have healthy? It's because here's, here's the thing about the gut that I, I kind of put two and two together in the last few years. Like the gut is, is obviously the microbiome, but it's really, you know, our food is, you know, we, we take our food from the world around us, but we process it in the gut. Mm-hmm. And the gut is this massive processing plant. And it's like an ethanol, like think of thinking about it, like you're taking corn to an ethanol plant. It's like, you got to process the food into a fuel supply that can be provided to the mitochondria, you know, cause mitochondria don't receive food. They receive substrates that have been broken down by the, um, that have been broken down by the, the body. And so if your gut isn't functioning in a healthy way, then you're never going to get a proper fuel supply and you're going to have all this inflammation, which is going to use up a lot of energy to basically yeah. react constantly to the crap you're putting into the system. So it's like, you really got to get a healthy fuel, fuel supply in, but also a healthy fuel processing plant. Definitely. And so gut health is paramount. So if someone's gut is really unhealthy, then I really start with healing the gut first and then challenging the body with things like ketosis. Mm-hmm. Because the thing about ketosis is that oftentimes people don't do it right and they don't get enough fiber. And so they further damage the gut because they're feeding all sorts of, um, they're feeding all sorts of things like meat and, and, you know, dairy. And most of the time people in ketosis are not obviously eating grain, but um, it's pretty important that you heal the gut first so that the, the fuel supply is strong and that the gut, it, that the inflammation levels are lower so that you, your body just has enough energy to, um, to function. Mm-hmm. And so reducing the inflammatory cycles is really key. And a lot of people turn to carnivore diets for that. But the problem with the carnivore diet is it kills off the microbiome. And so you have to nurture and tend to the microbiome because otherwise you're never going to have full health. And, you know, I, I, I think the number of people who really thrive on the carnivore diet are very minimal and that it's, it's really about recognizing the value of a healthy microbiome because it's part of the, the, it's part of the fuel processing plant, you know, yeah. <laughs> it's like the yeah. microbiome, they're, they're participating in fuel processing yeah. and I- it's paramount that you feed them. Right. And so, um, that's when I f- figured all this out, I was like, oh man, this is like, this is so core and fundamental. Yeah. I think uh, the thing with the carnivore diet is that, um, it's going to create like a distinct, uh, microbiome and it's going to be different from a microbiome that is predominantly like uh, plant-based, so to say. So, uh, if you actually look at the people who are doing it, then you don't see like, uh, a reduction in the gut diversity so to say you you see like different strains of bacteria but it's not going to cause any serious issues for the for the person because they're not really eating uh you know plants and they're not eating vegetables therefore their microbiome would also have to be somewhat different because they're more like mm-hmm. a meat-based diet and mm-hmm. uh, the, i think the problem with that is that if people aren't going all in with a carnivore diet uh, mm-hmm. then they're just going to be in this peripheral zone where their mm-hmm. microbiome is still functioning as if like a vegetable-based vegetable microbiome, but they're eating mm-hmm. uh, plenty of meat and not enough vegetables mm-hmm. to uh, support that microbiome. And uh, therefore, yeah. they experience this inflammation and gut dysbiosis. But on the other hand, if someone were to go on a fully carnivorous diet, uh, then their microbiome would change. And uh, therefore, yes. they would also experience like basically no inflammation because they're not causing a dysbiosis. 
That's so the, the problem thing. Is, so, so the that's problem the thing. Is that but the problem is that you kill off the microbiome that that eats eats plants, and so when you reintroduce plants, you can't tolerate them. Right. Yeah. So it has to be like an all, almost all-in uh, approach, in a sense. <laughs> that uh, if you if you plan on eating some vegetables, then you would benefit from uh, eating them consistently. But if you're not eating them, or if if you plan on not eating them at all, then a carnivorous diet would uh, maintain this proper balance in the microbiome but at the same time if you change it up and if you change your diet then it's going to cause like this uh, dysbiosis in the short term and you have to like readapt again so it's like a very uh you know adaptable yeah. scenario in a sense that the microbiome is always changing based upon what you're feeding it exactly that's exactly what i was going to say and that that's the thing you have to People don't realize that like when you eat different types of dietary styles, your microbiome will shift to a comp like the, the, the microbes that eat, like eat those things, they'll grow. And so I was eating a lower protein, higher saturated fat diet because I was eating higher fat diet last summer. And, um, you know, and ketosis is not a high protein diet. So I noticed when I, I did my son genomics testing, which is a really cool company that makes custom probiotics. And they were like, they basically could read my microbes and say, you're eating a low protein, high saturated fat diet. I'm like, yeah, you nailed mm -hmm. it. That's exactly what I was eating. Um, so it's funny that, you know, we now can, we, we now can profile the gut and identify what's living and what's not living there and what's feeding on whatever you're eating. And so the thing is, is that I really have a hard time with a lot of these micro um, microbiome companies that are prescribing specific diets for people because whatever diet you eat will determine the microbiome that will grow. And so you can't necessarily give a person a particular prescriptive diet based on their microbiome currently, mm -hmm. because that is reflective of their diet currently. Right. And so I do think there's some value in, um, in things like biome and day two for helping people choose the foods that will not um, activate, you know, a hyperglycemic response. But, it, but like, but, but like saying that's the end all be all of the dietary prescription is crap because your microbiome is going to change depending on what you feed it. Mm. And it's like, you know, it's like your, it's like your garden will change depending on what you um, plant in it. You know, it's really not that much different than that. And so it's just, um, it's fascinating to me that people hook on to these ideas that these scientists are, and I've actually, I've spoken to the scientists of both of these companies, so they know how I feel about this stuff. <laughs> Um, you know, there, there's a lot more to health than just what's growing in the gut. What's growing in the gut is, is, is like one, one facet of this concept of the holobiome, which is the microbiome, the, um, and all that DNA that's, you know, being transcribed to determine what's, what's, um, what signals are being sent to the body. And then the, the mitochondria, right. Which have their own genetics and then your own genetics, right. So there's like these three interacting species Mm -hmm. of um entities in our body that are all communicating and i'm so stoked about this next wave of health knowledge that's really coming out into the public i was at paleo effects last year and it was so cool to see people picking up on the mitochondria as this like next big wave of health understanding mm -hmm. first yeah, it was like the genetics revolution and then it was the microbiome revolution and now it's the mitochondria revolution and then, and then finally we'll be we'll be like at a holistic place where people really <laughs> understand health yeah 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 for sure like you can't really uh dissect things into as you would in a, like a laboratory uh, or in a petri dish you have to look at things you have to look at the entire organism as a whole in a sense and how, how do these all different complex systems uh, interact with each other yes 
that's the that's that's what it is right there. We are a complex system of systems. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's what. Uh, yeah. What about um, you know if if a person is having trouble implementing these changes and changing these habits, uh, how do mm-hmm. the, how do they prevent from like rebounding and falling off the wagon, so to say? You know what? Um, what I've noticed is that the reason why people tend to have a hard time with habit creation is twofold. The, the first one is they try to change too many things at the same time. And the body doesn't actually like that. The body will feel the biggest difference from a lot of changes all at once, but the body doesn't like that. The body wants slow change over time. That's the way we're designed. And so um, what I usually, what I think what makes me kind of different than a lot of doctors and a lot of health promoters is I'm all about what can you actually accomplish and how long is it going to take you to get to that change? And um, unless someone's really sick, by the way, I'm not going to make them change a million things all at once. But if someone is really ill and they have no choice but to make these changes, like they tend to be more motivated because they're not, they're not well. And so somebody who's really suffering and has been suffering for 10 years will do almost everything I tell them to do because they're like, it's just, this is life or death for me. I got it. Mm-hmm. I cannot live this way anymore. But for people who are generally healthy, who want to improve their health, who might be having trouble with making lifestyle changes, the key is, is always what can you actually accomplish and win at and then maintain? And that's the real, that's a real way to get to lasting changes. And so to me, it's actually about doing less and being content with doing less and winning at those fewer things and maintaining those fewer things and giving your body a bit of a, uh, giving it a bit of a break (laughs) instead of trying to be so crazy, um, overwhelmed with biohacks Mm -hmm. that you don't actually maintain anything consistently. That is like, that's the magic is like consistency and, um, and really self-love and really giving yourself the encouragement and the self-compassion that you, you've actually done something good for yourself. And so, um, you know, like prioritization is everything when it comes to health. So it's like, what's the biggest delta you need to close to have the biggest effect change? Usually it's the area of your health that's, that's struggling the most. So let's say your sleep sucks, your diet's pretty good and your exercise is, you know, moderately, moderately, um, efficient, you know, and you're doing a moderate, moderately good job on your exercise, obviously focus on sleep Mm -hmm. because that's going to have the biggest downstream effects because if your sleep sucks and everything else sucks. You don't have enough energy to exercise. You can't make the right food choices because you're in a high cortisol state. So it's about really prioritizing based on what's your biggest problem. And then how can you really, really hone in on that system and that problem and really win at succeeding and improving it. So I focused on sleep first because it was my biggest issue years ago. And now I barely even think about it because it's such a, it's such a habit and priority that when I don't get good sleep, it's like, whoa, I cannot believe <laughs> what it's like to not sleep well, you know, like it just, it throws me completely off. So um, to me, it's actually about, okay, the beginning of the year is beginning, right? Like, let's say you've got an array of changes you can make in your life. Just focus on one change and really win at that. And if you can maintain that for the next year, like if people, if people actually were to just choose one change that they did in, in the next year and just literally take the weight off their shoulders for everything else, um, and I'm talking about relatively healthy people. I'm not talking about the super sick, um, but relatively healthy people ch- making one big change and succeeding at it. 
that's like compounding interest. That's like you made a big investment and you're just watching the, the investment grow. That compounding interest really grows over time. And, you know, I've got a list of about 20 different health um, habits that are really necessary for optimal health. And if you can just choose one a year, I mean, it's a totally different way of thinking about health creation than what most people are trying to sell you, which is like, do this program and sign up for this and buy this book. And it's like, sure, you can do all those things, but you're going to fail when you backslide because you stress, the stress will hit you and you'll, and you'll fall off the wagon. Right. So it's about small change over time leads to really big results and really giving yourself um, the freedom to not overload your system with too many things at once. And that's a fundamental paradigm shift from what people are selling you in most, um, in most health books and in most lifestyle programs. Because to me, this is what actually the body's designed to do. <laughs> mm -hmm. The body's designed to do slow change over time. Yeah. Unless you're broken and you have an emergency and you have to plug because otherwise the building's going to collapse. Those mm -hmm. people tend to need um, a lot more help. And so those people I talk to on a weekly basis there, I'm hand holding them through health improvements. Um, but you know, I, I have to admit, like I've been so focused on the physical plane for so long that I really now I'm going to tell most people like meditation because <laughs> mm -hmm. meditation takes away so much stress from the body that I'm just like, wow, you know, it's so, it's so profound what it can do for health. But at the same time, it's also risky. Um, when you start tasting the fruits of enlightenment and you realize that there's a, in that process, you might make, you might meet the dark night of the soul. Uh, you know, you gotta be careful how much you tell people to meditate because it can really, um, it can really turn your life upside down. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like, uh, a lot of the times people tend to focus on, uh, what's the magic pill or what's the secret that is going to help me to, uh, kind of jumpstart the results. But the, but more, more often than not, it's just uh, getting back to the basics and just sticking to the consistency because, you know, the modern world also kind of conditions us to be less patient and we want the results as fast as possible without realizing yeah. that it, sometimes it just takes a while. And especially in like yeah. weight loss and fat loss, like, uh, yeah. you know, you're going to have to go through several days and weeks, even sometimes mm -hmm. where you don't see like a lot of significant progress. But uh, yeah. if, you're, if you're going to bail out and, you know, quit or, you know, rebound at that point, then you're just, uh, you know, jeopardizing your results and you're taking yourself yes. backward. Whereas you had, yes. what, what you had to do instead was to just grind it through and actually just stay consistent with it so that you would kind of get over this hump and uh, yeah. allow your body to kind of shift into a new zone or a new level. You know, I have to admit as well that, um, first of all, I agree with all that. That's just, that's it right there. But I also think that a very highly overlooked area of health that I personally ignored a lot because I was so focused on, you know, rationalism and dog and like avoiding dogma and, and focusing on empiricism and focusing on science that I was able to overlook the importance of emotional well-being mm. and its role in health um, habit creation and the importance of really tending to your emotions and not bottling them up and not ignoring them because typically that's what causes people to fall off the wagon yeah. as they get hit with some serious emotional stress and then they're not resilient to it because they haven't paid attention to the feelings that they have. And it's like, they, they don't know what to do with those emotions. And so they either eat their emotions or they over exercise their emotions or they suppress their emotions. And those, the, that, that energy 
is going to come out in some way, whether it be a blow up with your partner or your spouse, or whether it be um, a health problem. And like unresolved emotional stress will drain your energy. And so it drains your capacity to actually react appropriately to, um, you know, a big stressor. Mm-hmm. And, and essentially like unexpressed emotions cause disease. And so when I really figured this out in the last year, I was like, oh my God, what a gigantic blind spot in my paradigm of health understanding, you know? And, it's, it, and, and that's kind of why I think it's important for, for, you know, for me to publicly state that I support the psychedelic um, assisted psychotherapy movement mm-hmm. so strongly because I believe that a lot of people do want the quick fix and they don't want to go through years of therapy to get to this, you know, moment of clarity. And the coolest thing about psychedelic assisted psychotherapy is you can get literally years of therapy done in a few days of therapy or a few months. And to me, it's like, we live in a Western culture that wants results quickly. And I'm so excited for companies like the Multidisciplinary Association of Psychedelic Studies and Compass, who are working diligently to bring MDMA-assisted therapy to the forefront for treating PTSD, which is so pervasive. I see it in so many of my clients with disease. And, you know, um, psilocybin-assisted therapy for for chronic depression and for treatment-resistant depression and for end-of-life depression and anxiety. And even ketamine-assisted therapy for um, suicidal depression or people with PTSD. I mean, I'm seeing such remarkable results in people who get these treatments that I have to be outward and talk about this um, on podcasts and, and publicly because they're both so profoundly useful for improving the human condition, but they're also so risky that I see people taking these substances into their own hands and experimenting with them in ways that are not conducive to optimal health. And so I'm actually a big proponent, but also critic of this movement. And I think it's really important to talk about these things um, on public platforms because they're coming and they're really coming (laughs) in a big way. And, you know, they're coming through the underground or they're coming through the above ground movements. And so it's really exciting to see that we are now developing pathways for people to get the treatment that they need, but also, um, you know, they're, they're risky and they're, and they come with side effects. And so it's really cool that we're, I mean, I'm really optimistic for humanity. I think we're, we're entering a totally exciting new phase of human evolution that is just enhanced by both these, um, psychedelic tools, but also these technological tools. I mean, there's so many unbelievable ways of now we're discovering that we can measure metabolism Mm -hmm. in real time that it's just, it's really astonishing and exciting to be born in this time. Yeah, definitely. Like uh, the technology itself is going to just kind of help us to go inward or have more awareness about the body itself. And like you said, in real time, as well as just like um, Mm -hmm. the mind and uh, those things. So very, very interesting to see how this uh, combination is going to play out. But do do you think that, like the healthcare or the uh, pharma, big pharma, would they ever uh, kind of I- implement these uh, psychedelics into their, you know, I don't know. Into oh, their... I mean, there are BC funds that are popping up specifically to invest in psychedelic medicine as a therapeutic treatment covered by insurance. 
So if, if there wasn't money being poured into these funds, I wouldn't believe it, but they, the money is going into these funds. And so absolutely. I mean, when there's, when there's money to be, I mean, this is actually, there was actually a really good article written about the risks of this movement falling into the hands of pharma, mm. because what pharma tries to do to a lot of these compounds, for example, ketamine is they try to remove the psychedelic experience from the, from the, um, from the substance. But the psychedelic experience is part of the therapeutic experience. And so that's one of the problems with um, these companies is that they, they, they think that what they're doing is improving the risk profile and reducing the side effect profile, but actually they're maybe removing some of the benefits of it. So, oh my God, there's definitely movement in pharma for sure, hmm. 100%. And I mean, let's, let's get real here. Pharma already prescribes psychedelic medicine and it's called ketamine. <laughs> pharma already prescribes psychoactive medicine, opioids, and methamphetamine in the form of things like Adderall. I mean, these are psychoactive treatments, right? Like right. They're, these are serious, serious, serious drugs that, you know, if you buy on the street, it's a different schedule than if you get it prescribed by a doctor. So um, yeah, it's already happening. And it's already being abused, and which is why it's really important that, you know, we, we, people like me come out and talk about the risks, the benefits, and, and, both, and both sides of the story. Because these are also sacraments, things like psilocybin and, um, and other psychedelic medicines. They, they, are all, they are all also sacraments that people are using in religious contexts. So we have to respect that that you know that role of these in, in helping people deal with existential angst mm -hmm. yeah what, what what is like um the main mechanism these uh treatments work like is it stress relief or is it some other uh thing actually that actually one of the coolest things that um ketamine and other psychedelics can do for the brain is that during chronic stress the brain will go into a energy saving mode where it actually will prune new connections. It'll actually keep you from making new brain connections because that's a very energy taxing um, thing to do. Mm -hmm. And it, it's actually trying to preserve the, the body's ability to survive. So instead of making new connections throughout the brain, it really funnels most of the energy to survival. And in doing so, it, it, it's, it, it can shut down certain new, certain pathways from, um, from actually being able to connect to each other. So you get overstimulation of the fear pathways because that would keep you alive is like knowing that, you, that there's something dangerous around you. And it also um, can really screw up other processing pathways. So, you know, things like memory mm -hmm. and what these, the ability to form new neural connections. So they can increase neuroplasticity. And that is profoundly useful because now you can actually build a new pathway out of the ditch that you're in, mm. where you're like flailing your arms in the air, freaking out. And you're like, well, I don't even know what to do here. What do I do here? Mm -hmm. I, you know, the downward spiral of depression and burnout and anxiety is essentially a body that cannot think its way out of the problem that it's in because it, it's got an energy deficiency component and it's got a lack of neuroplasticity component. Hmm. And so um, what these things can do is actually increase neuroplasticity and to help you develop new ways of thinking your way out of the problem. And the coolest thing about MDMA is that, um, so MDMA can actually give you the ability to, to face 
this the, the trauma that is that like instigated the the um, downward spiral that you were in mm-hmm. it enables you to face that trauma in a state of actually feeling quite good because your body is flooded with serotonergic um, neurotransmission so you have you know it's a high serotonin state which actually is quite pleasurable and can be euphoric and now you're able to face your demons from a place of i'm not afraid mm-hmm. so that's a hugely valuable thing to do and you can also increase your trust in your practitioner you're working with. So not only are you feeling safe and held, but also you can trust someone. So that's pretty, that's pretty important for MDMA as a therapy for PTSD. But for ketamine, when you're about to kill yourself, what it can do is it can de- disassociate you from your body. And by disassociating you from your body, you're able to see yourself from a third person perspective. And so if you're about to kill yourself and you can now disassociate from your body and see what you're doing to yourself, now you can actually look at yourself from a place of compassion and understanding and empathy that you weren't able to do because you were in a state of deep pain and fear. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Like it's almost like the uh, trauma or the stress is kind of inhibiting the idea of you know, doing novel things and you could just uh, mm-hmm. revert back to the old habits mm-hmm. and the old patterns mm-hmm. that are causing you the stress and the causing this trauma. So yeah, yes, it's, it's you a start kind of, consolidating it's, those pathways. You can break, you can break the vicious cycle, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yes, you nailed it. I mean, it's right there. It's mm-hmm. like either you keep traveling down the same rumination pathways of depression or, you know, and perseveration pathways and of anxiety, right? Elimination of perseveration are, are pretty common in, in depression and anxiety. It's like to break those pathways, you literally have to like to experience a new frequency. Hmm. And so we're basically electromagnetic beings and we're vibrating at different frequencies. And what these do is they induce a state change. And so your brain can actually learn what that feels like to be at a different vibrational frequency, which can be measured through things like EEG and HRV and, um, you know, EKG, and you can actually repattern the body's ability to adapt to um, the same stressor. So it's freaking cool, man, that we have this <laughs> in, in our arsenal and that it's coming to the mainstream. Right. You know, definitely. What, what if uh, what if uh, someone doesn't have access to these types of things and they don't want to do it for some reason? Uh, what are some like more uh, easier, okay, okay. easier, yeah, easier ways yeah. of uh, fixing stress and uh, trauma? So holotropic breath work through Stanislav, Stanislav Grof um, is a type of breathwork practice that can actually be psychedelic in, in its experience and can actually bring you to similar states of consciousness expansion that psychedelics can bring you to. So breathwork is a powerful tool. Um, there's also schools of meditation that can bring you to the, I mean, let, let me tell you something. I have done some esoteric forms of meditation and I have tripped on my neurochemistry <laughs> and I've seen the top of the mountain without any drugs at all. And so um, these schools are pretty rare and you have to be a seeker to find them. But if you want to avoid um, the, met- like the, the path of psychedelics and you still want a psychedelic experience, you can definitely get to the same space. It just takes more effort and it takes more diligence and consistency. But the thing is, is that I actually have, I always tell people you've got to approach these deep forms of meditation practice with a disclaimer because they are just as profoundly influential and risky as psychedelics are. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So um, you got to recognize that meditation 
can completely um, open your mind and lead to moments of enlightenment, which completely flip, flip, flip your world upside down. So I tell people, look, meditation is just as dangerous as um, psychedelics. Mm -hmm. You can have, people actually have psychotic breakdowns through, if they're not prepared to do meditation. So the real, the real way to go about all this is starting low, going slow and titrating up. So starting with the small minimum, the minimum dose to experience some state change, whether it be like 10 minutes of meditation a day or microdosing, things like that. Um, you know, those are much safer pathways to, um, to experiencing a shift in your physiology than going full force into Vipassana meditation or mm -hmm. like a psychedelic trip. Like I never recommend people go to the top of the mountain without some um, idea of what the mountain looks like. So doing a little hike at the bottom of the mountain is way safer than like taking a rocket ship to the top or <laughs> even hiking alone without any supplies. Yeah. And you can, you can apply the same idea to fasting. <laughs> yes, 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 exactly. Uh, what about stress management? Uh, you know, stress, I think a lot of these problems that people have in the imbalances in the body come from just mm -hmm. stress, chronic stress from the uh, modern world. You know, I would say probably the biggest stress management tool that's so overlooked because people are so disconnected is human contact, physical human contact, face-to-face -face <laughs> human contact, human touch, <laughs> yeah. eye, human eye contact, <laughs> getting into your community spending time with people you love and trust. This is we are designed to be living in community, not in isolation. So the best thing you can do is get off your social media and go interact with your friends and go do things in social environments because that is the most nurturing thing you can do for your body. And so get into human contact more. Um, really, really take a break from social media um, one of the things I'm going to start doing is like checking and posting social media once a day, mm -hmm. maybe twice a day, but like really putting some serious limits on social media because I think it's toxic to human, the human, um, condition and really prioritizing loving human relationships because the fundamental truth is that we are not separate selves. This is an illusion. This, this con, this concept of, of being an individual is an illusion. We are all one part of a, you know, massive unity consciousness. And most will never experience that because they don't go to states of unity consciousness through things like psychedelics or meditation. So there's this illusion of a separate self that, that basically puts us in a state of feeling like we're alone. And loneliness is a really big problem in modern society, but it's, it's all an illusion. And so the only way to break that illusion is to actually touch people and feel connected and feel physically like you're not alone um and so the one of the ways to do that is to just literally break the cycle by literally touching and, mm -hmm. and like i love going and hanging out with my friends and like giving each other body work sessions and just like getting just like cuddling you know like cuddling my friends is like one of the greatest things to do with family members like spending time with people you love and trust and just like the physical connection is so key yeah yeah definitely like and the there are some studies showing as well that children who are like neglected physically uh, or mm -hmm. if, if their mothers don't touch them or hug them then they mm -hmm. develop some they don't develop the same way as uh, you know these nurtured children do it <laughs> so yep. physical touch is like very also, important yeah i would also add it to i would also add that nature exposure is so under underutilized and it, it is like such an easy way to get to a moment to a state of awe and wonder that like 
I've had psychedelic experiences just looking over the top of a mountain physically. Mm -hmm. So maybe literally just getting to the top of a mountain physically is actually all you need to institute that. I mean, I'm, I'm in Maui. And so all I got to do is walk outside and see the sunset for me to be like, oh my God, this is just astonishing. So I, I'm a big believer in, in nature exposure, if, especially if you don't have a lot of, if you don't have a strong community, um, just spending time in nature can nourish your immune system and nourish your nervous system in ways that, um, you know, can bring you to that sense of connection with the world around you. So getting into nature is everything. And then obviously the other things like you can do for self-care, like sauna, cold plunge, um, you know, things like that. The, getting into your physical body is really helpful and just exercise. Definitely, definitely. The fundamentals again. Of, uh, These are of... really the fundamentals. And yet I, I, once you read the science, you're like, these are not, these are not bullshit. Yeah. Like we don't need to reinvent the wheel here. We need to actually get back to the basics. Definitely. It's like uh, learning how to be human again. This is exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we think that there's something wrong with us and actually there's something wrong with us. There's something wrong with the way we designed our modern lifestyles. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Uh, so yeah, it's been, uh, I think it's a good notion to start uh, wrapping things up. So uh, it's been yeah, great talking with you. Yeah. And uh, yeah. you mentioned, you mentioned you have an upcoming book and uh, your social media. So where can people uh, learn more about you? Sure. And your work? Well, you can find my social media currently. I, although I'm doing a big rebrand as I'm trying to try to dissolve the narrative self. <laughs> <laughs> so you can currently find me at, at drmolly.co, D-R-M-O-L-L-Y.co, the website, as well as the Instagram. Um, LinkedIn is great too, Molly Maloof MD, uh, Twitter as well, Molly Maloof MD. But um, my email is M-M-A-L-O-O-F, so Maloof at gmail.com or at stanford.edu and that's maloof with an f um so those are the best ways to contact me but i'll be doing a bunch of rebranding soon so um you know email is best and then uh yeah i'd love to hear from anyone who wants to wants to chat awesome sounds good we're gonna put all the links in the show notes and uh my last question is uh what's this one piece of advice or habit you wish you adopted sooner self-love hands down, love yourself because this is your body and this is your life. And this is the one that you get right now that we know of. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's good advice. And uh, definitely like uh, self-love doesn't mean that you eat donuts or <laughs> self-love it also means, it means that you actually take care of yourself. <laughs> eating donuts is, um, well, is, sometimes, yeah, but know, I mean, I mean, it, it's uh, self-medication. Yeah. So yeah, it's for uh, your deep pain that you're trying to feed. You're, most people are trying to feed the deep pain with donuts. Yeah. Um, because they don't love themselves. Yeah, exactly. So it's like uh, taking care of yourself and uh, taking care of others. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, yeah, it's uh, great talking with you and uh, looking forward to maybe doing another podcast sometime in the future. That'd be great. All right, that's it for this episode of the Body, Mind, Apartment podcast. If you want to support us, then I would greatly appreciate it if you could leave us a review on iTunes and the other social media platforms. You can now order my new book, Metabolic Autophagy, that covers a lot of the same topics that we talked in here. It's a collection of certain lifestyle habits and practices that prioritize longevity as well as performance. 
To support this podcast, you can also become a Patreon and get exclusive video lectures from my biohacking bootcamp that covers circadian rhythms, intermittent fasting, autophagy, resistance training, biofeedback, and many more. But other than that, my name is Seem. Stay tuned for the next episode. Stay empowered.